Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I'm Dr. Shabnam Berry-Khan and we are today going to visit the idea of expert witness work within the litigation work that we do for our personal injury clients. And I am very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Katie Nunes, who is a psychology expert witness from Applied Psychology Solutions who has a lot of experience in this area and who has offered to talk a little bit about what it means to be an expert witness and um, her experiences of it. So welcome, Katie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Thanks for your time. Expert witness work is, as a case manager and a treating psychologist, it's almost a step away from the work we do. Obviously, we're often um, directed by the expert witness work that is done by your people like yourself and other colleagues but I'm not entirely sure that um, it's a very well-known process it's a very well-known there's a clear understanding of the role that you perform in the wider litigation picture so tell us a little bit about you Katie and your work linked to the expert witness stuff that you do Okay, so I got into expert witness work uh, over a decade ago now. And Mm. previous to that, I'd been working in learning disability services and also with um, people with traumatic histories and eating disorders. So two separate roles. In the learning disability world, we often have to carry out capacity assessments. And it was that that kind of springboarded me into civil litigation. I don't work in family courts or forensic. I just do civil. So that's my area of speciality. And I sort of fell into it, which I think a lot of psychologists, mm. I, I don't know about other professionals, possibly do. And I, I've got to say, it's, it's not a good way to start. So <laughs> we're not trained as clinical psychologists to, to do this kind of work within our doctorate courses. So mm. one of the things that we really need to do as expert witnesses is to find out what it is that we're supposed to be doing as expert witnesses. Because as you say, a lot of people just don't know. And it's a very specific type of work, which is both separate and also very much linked, obviously, with the training that we've had. So we are instructed by hopefully a solicitor, sometimes through an agency, and we're asked to assess a claimant for a condition and prognosis. So that's looking at whether the difficulties, psychological difficulties a claimant is presenting with are related to the claim itself or whether they're related to other issues and to give a prognosis, which will often include the treatment. So that's the basics of what an expert witness report is supposed to be doing. Mm, yeah, no, that's really helpful. I've I, I never thought of it in terms of kind of condition and prognosis. As a treating psychologist, we tend to, like you say, look at the recommendations and try and implement those obviously on the back of uh, what the litigating solicitors uh, recommend why expert witness work though what was it about the springboard of doing capacity assessments that kind of got you interested just a little personal journey you know what's your personal journey to it (laughs) so I started working through a third party which I think a lot of um, expert Mm. witnesses do and ended up working a lot doing this work very very quickly and then ended up doing the training wrong way around do not recommend that Um, (laughs) so I ended up doing the training with Bond Solon who do excellent training um, and then also with the Expert Witness Institute and I've got the Cardiff Law School Bond Solon uh, accreditation certificate as being a an expert witness in civil litigation which shows that I know what I'm doing. I know how to be an expert. And I think it's important that we know that. But the thing that really drew me to this work was the detective element of it. So Mm. as psychologists, we do that anyway, a little bit when we when we put our formulations together, we're pulling all the different bits and pieces that we've been told about a person. And we put it together in this kind of paragraph summary picture, whatever it is that we do. And we try and explain why it is that this person's experiencing what they're experiencing. And then what element can we tackle first in order to help them out of it or through it or how we can help them to just sort of live with this now. So Mm. in expert witness work, 
you, you do that, but you have to do it more. So you have to be a real detective. So as a psychologist, we often focus just on the sort of the, the experience of the person, the lived experience, their subjective experience. And we just take that as read. And that's what we base our formulation on. And as an expert witness, you then have lots of other things to look at as well. So you've got to look at the GP records and therapy records and previous medical reports, lots and lots of different things, sometimes occupational mm. records, schools, depending on who, you know, whether you're working with a child or an adult. And you then take what the claimant has experienced, but also then take all the other evidence and you really interrogate what it is that you've been told and analyze it and then help the court to figure out what is because of this, this trauma and what is actually related to other things so that they can help to understand the psychological presentation that somebody has. And that's what I like to do. I like that detective work. Mm. Would you have been something like a detective, do you think, if you weren't a psychologist? (laughs) (laughs) It's a question I should probably ask everyone. If you weren't a psychologist, what would you do? (laughs) I got a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a a clue there. (laughs) Yeah. I love that question. Possibly. I, l- I like the idea of, um, I always like the idea of sort of forensic pathology when I read those, yeah. ki- read those kind of novels. So I could imagine potentially doing that. But yes. also, you know, with this kind of work, every now and then it just kind of flits through your mind that you just like to go and stop and bake cakes and do something a lot less stressful. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> well, I guess the two aren't mutually exclusive, but I do know what you mean. <laughs> there is some, uh, yeah, some respite required um, for the old brain. But yeah, tell me a little bit about Bon Solon. Um, I have heard that it is, is that specifically for psychology or is that um, a generic kind of expert witness training service? And also I've heard it's quite rigorous. It is. It is, both, it's, it is rigorous. It's not just for psychologists. So Bon Solon okay. um, offer expert witness training in all of the different courts and also, and, and you can then go and become accredited with Bon Solon through the civil, forensic or family courts or with all of those if, if your bag is all three of them. The training involves report writing and court skills and uh, understanding civil procedure. And they've been doing it for a long time. It is very rigorous. It's, mm. it's hard. Uh, the cross-examination particularly um, mm. is probably yeah. good experience. And, and so they, they do that. The Expert Witness Institute have similar training um Mm -hmm. similarly rigorous at the moment they're still working on what their accreditation will look like because at the moment this is the difficulty we have is that expert witnesses aren't they don't have to be accredited so you anyone can call themselves an expert witness and the courts have had some real difficulties with that in the past where people actually aren't experts and have put themselves forward as such what you need from an expert witness is somebody who both really knows their stuff from the point of view of their profession but also mm-hmm. really knows how to be an expert witness. And that's where those kinds of courses with the EWI, Bon Solon, and from a psychological perspective, also the British Psychological Society with Susan Van Skoyek, um, yeah, yeah. we all, we do training um, to help expert witnesses to understand how to be an expert witness. So for myself, I do training through the Expert Witness Institute specifically for psychologists and health and mental health professionals. So they have that in addition. So it's, and that's specifically for civil litigation. So I have a very small niche that I do offer as specific training for people who want to do civil litigation or who want to refresh their skills within that kind of mental health aspect. And the British Psychological Society is all the courts, but specifically for psychologists. And the rest of the EWI training and the Bond Solon training is generic, all the courts, mm. all the experts. I'm with you. I'm with you. Gosh, I hadn't quite realised, actually, that there was that it was some expert the the definition of expert witness is the expertise in the in the work that you do that your that your specialism for example psychology occupation whatever but also it's about how you are able to present that information for the courts is is that what you is that what you were saying that that it's that's the sort of if you like I mean you can't see my bunny it is but um, that, that, that's the that's the sort of function of it or the definition of a, an expert witness that it's specialism and ability to present that be it in a report format or obviously in court. Yes absolutely you need to have a medical legal mind um, mm. which is not not my phrase that's from Giles Eyre who's a barrister who does some training with the Expert Witness Institute and this idea of this this medico-legal mind is that you understand your duties, which is overridingly to the court, which is 
Mm. Really important. Mm. You're able to apply appropriate methodology to the work that you're doing, logical research, evidence-based um, interrogation of the information, that you understand how to assess somebody and write a report in this particular context. But most importantly, that you recognize that the fundamental purpose of our evidence is to assess the validity of the claim and from, from our fresh professional perspective and to help the court to understand the quantum that yeah. applies in this particular case. So it's, it's not as simple as carrying out an ordinary psychological assessment and then sort of almost regurgitating what it is that you were told by the claimant and therefore this is what the diagnosis, for instance, might be and this is what the treatment is. It needs to be so much more rigorous yeah. and analytical than that. And then there's the civil procedure rules that we must follow yeah. and we have to sign the declaration at the end of our reports to say that we've read and understood them. And those do encompass everything that you need to know. And I suppose that it would be perfectly possible to be a, an expert witness just having read the civil procedure rules and, and going off and doing it. But actually the extra training to really enhance your understanding of what those rules really do mean in practice, I think is, um, is essential. Mm. How did you know you were ready to do that work? Because it is, like you say, there's a real responsibility, not just to um, the legal processes, but to the, the content that you have been given, which is, is beyond um, the experience that you have or the sessions that you have with your client. It's all the other information that you've got as well. And you've got to come up with something that will, uh, like you say, validate the claim and, and help understand the quantum but it's a it's a it's a massive analysis and how do you sit with that um knowing the info you know that the, the interview with the, the the assessment session with the client is actually only just one small part which obviously well maybe it's not small but it's it's a part of the process and there's a whole other other bunch of gump that you know the bundle that you would have been sent that may be in contradiction potentially to the client's account or it, it, how do you how do you balance all of that <laughs> big question it's, it's, it's a big question it's it is it isn't always easy and mm. it's really important I think to just keep that overarching duty to the court in your mind mm. at all times and mm. it is difficult especially from a, a psychological perspective because when we assess somebody our training is all about showing as much empathy as possible mm. and sort of helping guide them in the process. Whereas actually what we have to do a lot more in medical legal work is to actually interrogate a little bit, you know, in the nicest possible way. We have to ask people questions that they don't want to answer. And we have to ask them about sort of their, their full history and any traumas they've had before. They don't need to give us lots and lots of information, but we need to really get that full picture before we even start to think that we understand what it is that's in front of us but I think that if you if you approach these interviews thinking it doesn't matter whether I am instructed by the claimant or the defendant my duty is to the court then you have that almost a bit of a barrier a step back so you're able to really kind of go okay I, I understand I can empathize that this person's gone through this difficult situation but actually what they're telling me isn't the full picture not because they're deliberately missing things out absolutely not necessarily the case but you have to have that kind of like, okay, I will take this and I will understand this information and I will check it up against all the other information that I have been given because you just have to keep that kind of, that medical legal mentality at all times when you're carrying out this and when you're then writing up the report afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I listen to you talk, I just think it's not for me. <laughs> Um, and I know that you've said that it's the detective, you know, how when did you know that you were ready to, to do that detective work that you felt like, you know, I can take on any cross-examination, you know, because I think you've just got to be so confident in your knowledge, in your ability to present that information. You've got to be really sure of yourself. You do. You do have to be very, very <laughs> sure of your opinion. Your instructing mm. party will not thank you for being a little bit kind of weak and wishy-washy, which is really hard for a psychologist. I'm going to be mm -hmm. honest. Yes. <laughs> you know, we don't deal with the, the binary black and white things of the world. We have a, a slightly softer, fluffier science that we work yeah. with. But I don't think it's necessarily a case that you know that you're ready to do it. It's a case that you look at the situation that the work entails and you decide whether actually you think that that will fit with who you are and how you are going to do this. There are some people who just aren't 
designed to do this work and that is absolutely fine. It just isn't for them. And in the same way that I wouldn't do family court work, mm. I've done one report when I was in the Lender Disability Service and I've done training in it, but it just is, that's just not for me. I just couldn't do that. Whereas this mm. fits much better with the kind of the, the personality I have. I'm used to doing presentations. So the idea of presenting my thoughts in a coherent way for lay people to understand mm. doesn't concern me so much. And I think it's having those skills rather than feeling that you're ready because actually nobody in my experience feels comfortable with the idea about going to court and being cross-examined in a civil case nobody feels happy when part 35 questions ping into their email box Mm. or when they have to do a joint statement because it all all of those things kind of encourage our imposter syndrome to come up and we all still have that because we're all still human beings so it's about being able to remember that actually this is your job your job is to help the court and if you don't think you can do that safely for you and Mm. for your own mental health and proficiently then then yeah this isn't the role for you yeah maybe not yet maybe one day but that's okay I think you're right it is something about sitting with imposter syndrome as much as um having a sense of your you know your yeah having a good sense of your cv I suppose and and feeling that you can do the work and the client and the court's justice. So talk me through. So this is me um, outing myself a little bit um, in terms of the process of being an expert witness from referral to court or settlement, you know, which is probably more likely. I think court appearances and court dates are only adhered to, as someone told me once, um, like no more than between two and five percent or something like this. Um, cases actually make it to court. I don't know, you might have a different statistics, but it, the point is, it's like a tiny amount of claims actually end up in court. They are usually settled out of court. But tell, tell me about the referral to the court slash settlement life cycle that you would go through for a typical, if you can say that, case. So typically we'll have a letter of instruction um, come to our administrators. And that, to be fair, varies massively depending on who's instructing you. Let's take an ideal world where we're instructed directly by a very competent solicitor who explains exactly what has happened in this particular case, the nature of the expertise required, purpose of your report, and mm. requesting, hopefully specifically, you know, I want a condition and prognosis or a psychological report. And you know, then that should, all the other things, things like it should reflect your terms and conditions and tell you how long you, need, you have to contact the claimant and then how long you have to produce your report. So we then would accept that claim and hopefully soon after would then receive a bundle of um, medical records and potentially other bits and pieces such as uh, hospital records, treatment records if those are available, mental health records if those are available. And for me, I would read those prior to the assessment that I would have with the, with the claimant. Um, mm-hmm. I prefer to go in knowing that information rather than read it afterwards because sometimes claimants can forget things and they can forget Mm. you know times that they've gone to see their GP and it's helpful to be able to kind of probe that a little bit and find out whether it's a genuine forgetting or if they didn't want to talk about something specific that kind of thing is quite important to us so it's really helpful to get that bundle of records before the assessment then we'll assess the claimant and uh, at the moment that's happening quite a lot over Zoom which is working Mm -hmm. really really well actually Mm. I think for both claimants and for for expert witnesses um, in the mental health world especially in civil litigation, we don't need to necessarily be in the same room as somebody to be able to get this information from them. So we'll look at their history, including their trauma history, because we need to look at whether there's any kind of psychiatric history that's followed a trauma or whether somebody's particularly resilient. Obviously, psychiatric history is a, is a strong predictor of later difficulties with, um, with traumatic events. Mm-hmm. And so, and sometimes we do have to go all the way back. In fact, we, we do have to go all the way back to childhood and to ask whether there's been any difficulties there, because we do have to consider things like developmental trauma as well. So mm-hmm. how much detail to go into is always a good question. So we end up sort of saying, well, the court need to know how you've been historically, how you were immediately before this accident or incident that's happened and how you are now. So I try to do things chronologically. So I go through that process with them, do some psychometrics, and then we'll write my report. 
where I will cover everything I've talked about you know, with the claimant. I'll explain why I had to ask them all the questions I had to ask, pick out all the bits that were important from the bundle and give my formulation, my diagnosis, because the courts are still very married to the DSM-5 um, or mm. ICD criteria, which is uh, a whole different discussion. It certainly is. Have and, <laughs> so have a little bit so. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but more importantly, I think, we are giving a formulation and we are explaining that this is a normal reaction or it is not a normal reaction. And that's so much more important than what label we stick on it. So what we're basically saying is this is in, the psychological impact is affecting somebody's daily life in these ways, or actually the psychological issues are within a normal range. And what is affecting this person's life is, is outside of either the claim or the psychological issues. For instance, if it's somebody with chronic pain, but who's actually coping psychologically well. So if it's somebody who does need to have treatment, we'll have a, a treatment section in the report. And then obviously we have our prognosis section. So that's the report then flits out. Normally we turn that around within a few weeks um, in, in my particular company. And then we'll have opportunity for any corrections that need to come through. What we try not to do is to allow correction requests to change our opinion unless there is substantial new information. So this comes onto one of the sort of external pressures that I think we might end up talking about a little bit more later. But mm -hmm. this idea that actually the claimant wants us to say something specific, but actually that's the job of their potential witness statement rather than the job of my report. My report is independent. I'm not to be the claimant's advocate. And that's a really, really important thing to hold on to is that I'm not advocating for this person. I need to be entirely independent. So while there may be some factual corrections that need to take place we would probably want to try and steer away from being asked to change our opinion to to fit with what the claimant or what the instructing party would want us to do that is not our job so once we've kind of dealt with those side that side of things any requests to change or any amendments that need to be made we will then sometimes actually never hear of it again and in mm. a lot of cases that's it that's all we have and Potentially, sometimes we get told the case is closed. Sometimes we don't even get told that. So that element of it is a little bit odd um, in this line of mm. work, because depending on whether you're doing a lot of low value sort of RTA, low value RTA claims, you know, those ones, you know, they kind of go off and we don't necessarily hear again. But for um, some claims, the person will then have treatment, will come back to us for a second assessment so that we can find out whether it's been successful or not. So that'll be a whole new report. And in other cases, we might have part 35 questions and they'll come through where the other side want to ask questions about what it is that we've said. And it's a little bit, it's not supposed to be an interrogation by, by paper, although it is a little bit sometimes. And what they want to be able to do is to just kind of clarify points that we've made in our report and to kind of have a look at, you know, whether there's something in there that, that we would like to change based on any potential new information. Theoretically, mm. that shouldn't really come through part 35s, but it does sometimes. One of the things we're often asked to do is to give a percentage. So if somebody's had previous trauma or other traumas in their lives that has impacted on their psychological presentation, we are sometimes asked. So, you know, as an example, the, the claimant's um, mother sadly passed away three weeks after the accident. Could you please give us a percentage attribution as to the difficulties they have that's related to the bereavement versus the actual accident itself? Those kind of things oh. we try not to answer because that's just not, <laughs> that's oh, not how human beings work. <laughs> exactly. Crikey, gosh. But they're just pushing their luck, you know, in terms of trying to understand. Is that why, is that the motivation behind that question? Or is it a sort of a trying to catch you out kind of question? Or think, raise your imposter syndrome kind of question? <laughs> <laughs> I think the difficulty is that they're very used to the um, much more binary approach that some medical experts take from the point of view, say, orthopaedics, for instance, who, who are much more able uh, to say that something was accelerated by five years, or this is now 50% related to the accident and 50% related to a degeneration that would have occurred anyway. We can't do that because you can't compartmentalize people's emotions mm. in that kind of way. So what we have a tendency to do is to try and explain that actually, it's just, that's just not how this works. It's a domino effect. And we can talk about things being predominantly related to an index trauma or partially or only to a small extent. What they're actually really trying to do is just try and establish quantum, because if they are responsible mm -hmm. for 50%, then they will pay for 50%. So, but actually, yeah. it just doesn't work like that. However, 
in our line of work, um, in expert witness work, it's all about the balance of probability. So while scientific research generally accepts conclusions where the probability of getting the result by chance is sort of 5% or less, it's that 95% level of certainty from our stats days. In law, Mm -hmm. in civil litigation, the criterion is more likely than not. So what they're really asking us, is it more likely than not that this person would have ended up with a difficulty if it wasn't for this trauma? Mm. And and that's what they're kind of trying to pick apart. So hopefully we'll have done that in our original report. But if somebody has has failed to take into account something that perhaps they didn't know about, then that's the kind of thing that those part 35 questions will uh, will throw into our mm. into the mix. So that can be that can be tricky. And then mm. potentially following that, if the um, other side. So often if this is, happens, then you'll have a yeah, claimant expert and then you might have a defence expert. And then the two of us will have to get together to talk about areas of agreement and disagreement. So that's a joint statement. So a few cases end up with a joint statement situation where you then just have to sit down and sort of thrash out what you agree with and what you don't agree with from what the other person said, not to try and persuade the other person, but just to try and help the court to try and understand this, the nuances, yeah, the two different reports, you're saying two different things, how important are those differences? If one person said a depressive disorder and the other person said an anxiety disorder, how important is that difference? Mm. Not, not very, probably. No, yeah. So <laughs> it's about explaining that to the court. Right. Then hopefully, again, that should be it. Hopefully things will settle at that point. And if they don't, the next stage would be to go to court and yeah. to be cross-examined on, on your report when the other side will then get cross-examined on, the other expert will get cross-examined on their report, and uh, then it would settle after that. Yes. But as you say, it's very unlikely that most of these cases go to court. I have been a few times in my career. but Oh, wow. Yes, just a few. But, but not many, because, yeah, civil cases, the, the statistic I read was, was less than one in a thousand. Um, oh, wow. Civ- civil claims. Um, but I think, I don't know, it'd be really interesting to find that out, because... Uh, yes. I, I've, so seen, I've, I've heard a range. So, yeah, so that's really <laughs> interesting. And your experience certainly is testament to it being on the higher side than the, the lower well, numbers that we probably not necessarily. So I, yeah. I see probably six, nine people um, a week of varying different degrees of, of severity of accident. So some of them are actually fast track cases. Mm. So they're very unlikely to go to court. So I probably have a, a, a larger claim um, once a month or less. So the mm. fact that I've been to court a handful of times, I mean, really a very small handful of times mm, is, is testament that it's really not very frequent. Mm. But I did used to say, you're so unlikely to go to court when I did my training. No, you're never going to go to court. It's fine. And then I was asked to go twice last year. So I'm like, actually, <gasps> you do sometimes have to go to court. It will be OK. <laughs> yeah, yes, you do survive. You are proof of that. <laughs> Every process Absolutely. and surviving. Oh, no, that's really interesting. And in, in terms of the court, I mean, I guess th- the time that you've got to set aside for it, because it's, it's not an exact science at all, is it? The way the, the court timetable works. And often you're given a, a sort of range. Is, is it a case of that you've got to clear a diary for that X number of days or, or, or is it a bit more specific than, than that? It becomes more specific. So initially right. a claim will be given a trial window, which is several weeks during which that's expected the trial will take place and the length is provisional, the dates are provisional. You have to give the court mm. your, or your, your instructing party your dates when you're going to be out of the country in a way and unable to do it. But then the availability is filed and then hopefully within a few months you are told whether how, how many of those days you need to attend. So if it's a three-day trial, you're generally only going to be asked to attend one of those three days. You're not generally going to okay. need to be there for all three of them. Yeah, yeah, no, got it. Okay, no, that's really helpful. Thank you. You've already touched on some of the sort of priorities and pressures of being an expert witness within the context of the litigation process in terms of working with different colleagues, in terms of the, the sorts of preferences and how the information that you share is, for example, formulation-based as opposed to diagnosis-based, etc. It sounds really complicated. So you've got this report, which is all shiny and lovely, but I can see the thinking that goes behind it, particularly with psychology, uh, because we do work in a more of a, a grey, fuzzy sort of uh, sphere, I suppose, of, of, of thinking, because it is, you know, the, the psychological sciences is not uh, exact in any way. And I'm just wondering how it is that you manage some of the, I mean, what's, what's, what's one of the bigger pressures that you, you feel that you experience that, and how do you manage that in the work that you do as an expert? 
I guess there's two separate things though. The first I want to pick up on is what you were saying about this kind of the fuzzy world that we're in and the difficulties of how to kind of cope with that. And I think one of the ways that we cope with that is to is to is to rely on or remember that we need to give a range of opinion. So mm. if you were to get 10 psychologists in a room with one particular presentation, one particular, you know, claimant and all of their history, you may well get at least four, if not more, different opinions on what is going on for this claimant, which may be regarding attribution it may be with regards to their veracity it may be with regards to their prognosis and within our reports it is essential that we tell the court when a range of opinion exists and inevitably because we are quite a soft fuzzy science there is going Mm -hmm. to be a range of opinion Mm -hmm. so that's actually a really good way to cope with that so if you have that moment where you're sitting there thinking gosh I just don't know if this person would meet the full criteria for PTSD I, I don't think so but it would be something which I really need to consider. Then you write that. You say, yes, a range of opinion might include that this person has post-traumatic stress disorder. However, the absence of this particular criterion being met or the, 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 the overall feeling of a lack of density or lack of severity to the symptoms to the degree that I would expect for PTSD, I will go for an adjustment disorder with anxiety or a specific phobia. So that the fact that we have a range of opinion, I think, worries a lot of experts in this particular field but it shouldn't we should use that as a way of helping us to consider all the kind of the areas within this slightly fuzzy gray world that we are in and to help us hone down why we've got to the decision we've got to so there's that element of things the the pressure the external pressure is probably one of the hardest things to cope with in this from my perspective so i think Back in 2018, Bon Solon in their expert witness conference often ask experts um, a range of questions. And one of those was um, how many experts have felt pressured to change their their report by their instructing Mm. solicitor. And it was a quarter of all experts had been pressured to change what they were saying. And retaining that duty of independence to the court rather than acting as an advocate for the party who's appointed us or as an advocate for the claimant, Mm. that can be very hard to hold on to in the face of this kind of pressure. But it's so important because actually, if we get it wrong, the expert is entirely responsible for for what they do and what they say. There was a case a few years ago, um, back in I think 2018, 2019, it was uh, Dr. Zaffer, who was a GP in his particular situation. He was doing a lot of of these reports. Um, GP experts do tend to see people for about 15 minutes and he was producing 32 reports a day so i know it's a lot Um, that's a lot (laughs) but he had then seen this claimant he said that they had whiplash for a week and it was two months after the accident the symptoms had gone but then he was told that the claimant had told the agency that he was actually not satisfied and it didn't reflect his ongoing symptoms and these to and fro emails were sent and it was claimed that he still had severe to moderate pain in his back so Dr. Zaffer's secretary let him know and asked what to do. And he said, well, that's okay. We'll change the report. We'll say that his ongoing pain prognosis was six to eight months and physios required. And the revisions were done. It was all sorted. But the bundle that went to the other side included both of Dr. Zaffer's reports. So it then became evident that he didn't redate the report. He didn't say where the new information had come from. He just changed his opinion in the light of something he was told by somebody external. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was felt that he that he didn't mean to act dishonestly in the sense that he had no financial gain to act dishonestly. He didn't get any more money from saying that this person still had ongoing problems. But actually, he didn't care whether the Mm. amended contents were true or false. He just was getting another report out and he was sentenced to six months in prison. It was suspended, but then actually the Court of Appeal said it was too lenient and he should have gone to jail straight away for nine to 12 months. So that is the level of pressure that we have as expert witnesses. So you have the side of things where you've got potentially claimants going, you're not explaining, you know, my symptoms. I definitely have this particular disorder. I definitely need this help. Or you've got solicitors going, well, no, I know they told you that, but actually they're now saying this. You've got that on the one side, your duty to the court, and also the, the risk that actually if you mess this up, you can be sued and you can go to prison. So it can get quite high stakes and it can get very, very stressful from that perspective. So if you can just hold on really tightly to this, actually, I don't have to change my opinion. I don't have to change my report. I can write an addendum and say, you now say this. I don't have to do what it is I'm being pressured to do. 
but it is difficult. It is very, very difficult. Um, and it's harder when there's other agencies involved, which means that you can't directly talk to the solicitor and yeah. say, hang on, what's going on here? Have we just made, a, is there a misunderstanding? Because actually this doesn't fit with what I was told. Because if you're then having to go through agencies after agencies in order to, to get this information to and fro, it makes it even harder. Mm. And you have to make a judgment call then presumably at that point as to how to play it. Because if you don't have that information from the solicitor, the instructing solicitors right directly, you have to just go with what you truly believe using your integrity yeah. ultimately in terms of your duties to the court, in terms of the, the purpose of the the. Uh, you know the role that you have signed up to given that you have civil procedure rules that you're going to sign at the end of it all that this is actually where it is um and you might effectively piss off a few people (laughs) and and yeah it's it's a tricky balance isn't it because well it's not really in some ways when you look at it purely as a sort of you know you have to do you have to stick to your opinion on this this is about your specialism shining needing to shine through but the people pressure is, is the bit that I think triggers all sorts of other things. You know, you're running a business, for example, let's be honest. Um, you know, you rely on referrals coming in. You don't want to upset anyone. But at the same time, you know, that's, that needs to be considered, I guess, within some of the, you know, how we play it. But if you're not able to talk to people directly, it does get tricky. I can see that. Do you ever have any pressures from the treating therapists? Are there any, you know, competing priorities, if you like, or, or, or pressures that, that feed up? Because as a treating psychologist, we often get reports, obviously, or information from expert witness reports, if they're disclosable, of course, about the treatment work that we're to do. And sometimes it doesn't always fit what, mm-hmm. our, what our understanding is on the ground in, you know, on an ongoing basis. And that's usually a shared, that can sometimes be a shared opinion with the case manager, for example. Um, or the MDT that might be around the client. I'm wondering, uh, and, and on rare occasion, we have gone back and said, oh, I'm not sure that this is quite the right approach. For example, there was uh, a question about the, uh, I think EMDR was um, indicated in the expert witness report, and the uh, clinician was very clear that it, there were con- clear contraindicators, actually, as to whether that was the case, but the client and the uh, case manager and solicitor were very keen to implement what was recommended in the expert report. So we ended up having to kind of go back via and explain where, you know, what our thinking was. Um, but I'm not sure if that happens often. It certainly doesn't happen as a treating psychologist often upwards, but is, is that um, something that, that you have to put into the sort of the thinking pot in any way? Very occasionally. Um, so there's, there's two things. So I've had a couple of occasions where treating a psychologist has said actually I think that the expert was wrong and this person did have PTSD and then went through every single PTSD criteria as to why this person had met those criteria when I said I didn't think they did but actually what that treating clinician hadn't had the benefit of was the GP records which had showed that this person had complex sort of PTSD or a developmental trauma for many many years and of course not having necessarily had my report but only the summary of my report they weren't privy to that information as to why I didn't give that diagnosis. So that's a difficult thing. And also, of course, the treating clinician doesn't have to stand up in court and defend the diagnosis that they think is appropriate. So, you know, when we give a diagnosis, we give it because we think we can defend it. And if the treating clinician thinks that we're wrong, it's sort of a little bit difficult because we can kind of say, well, yes, but that's, again, part of a good range of opinion, but not the one that I would feel comfortable to try and and back up if I was pressured on trying to explain exactly why it would be this and not that. But from the point of view of the treatment recommendations, this is a really tricky one because what we try and base our treatment recommendations on is the assessment that we've done, Mm. NICE guidelines and research. And of course, NICE guidelines do change. For a long time, I've been recommending pain management programs. And of course, NICE guidelines have now taken those out. So it puts us in a very awkward position where we know sometimes that a particular approach would be really helpful for somebody, but actually it's difficult if the defendant, for instance, might come back and go, yes, but you've recommended something outside the NICE guidelines. Why would you do that? Um, And yeah, so that can be a little bit difficult. But equally, we've spent, you know, 
probably a couple of hours with this particular person. We've covered a lot with them. And if the treating clinician then assesses them for, say, EMDR and discovers that actually there's something there that means that that is contraindicated and there are you know many different reasons why it might be that isn't necessarily something that we will have been able to to do within that particular assessment because we're not assessing we're assessing everything not just you know their response to this particular treatment whether they are you know able to able to use pictures in their mind for as an example because obviously not everybody can and a lot of psychological therapies require people to be able to have internal images if the claimant's treating therapist then comes back to us and goes, do you know what? I've just discovered that this, this, and this is happening for this person, which means that this particular therapy isn't going to be great. Well, that's new information. We can change our opinion and adapt our opinion on the basis of new information. And I think mm. there'll be very few circumstances where I would turn around and go, oh no, do you know what? I don't care as a treating clinician that you don't think that's right. <laughs> go ahead and do what I say anyway. Because actually, if they've spent time assessing for therapy, it's a different kind of assessment in a lot of ways so what we're saying is that the presenting issue is this the guidelines that we have are that this is the appropriate therapy but if that's not going to work then we need to be told I think as as experts and we can write an addendum to explain okay well if the treating clinician has found that this isn't particularly helpful then absolutely I particularly like saying in my reports that I think an integrative therapeutic approach would be most beneficial because as yeah. clinical psychologists that's generally what we do well I was going to say yeah that's pretty um, true to true to form really isn't it that's that's our right. eclectic approach yes <laughs> we're not generally married to the one approach I mean in my therapeutic world I, I am EMDR trained and and ACT and CFT but generally I do a combo of ACT yeah. and CFT or you know CBT and EMDR and I'll throw those two together it's it's not as simple as kind of saying yes this this is the only approach that this person can have and I think that it would be incorrect to to make that that claim in our reports that this is the only thing that will help this person because actually if it's not the right therapeutic approach and it doesn't work then they've then got a negative experience of therapy making it even harder for them to necessarily make changes later yes yeah we find that we feed back more to psychiatrists or um, neuropsychiatrists more than uh, psychology expert witnesses, I have to say. So yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it brings up the question again of formulation versus diagnosis, and that sort of, you know, that it, that really does. It's it that's a that's a debate that has gone through so many generations of psychologists, <laughs> and it feels like as an expert witness, you're almost coming back to that at every sort of referral, probably as to. How do you explain the story as opposed to label the story? Yeah. And how, how do you get around that? I mean, this is, a, this is probably more a, a psychology-specific conversation rather than one for our wider audience who are probably thinking, you know, what does that mean? But, it, it, you know, if, if there's a way to sort of explain it to a, a non-psychology audience, how would you do that? <laughs> Formulation, to, you know, is, um, uh, that's our main tool of understanding our clients and diagnosis is is not really at all but it's the one that that people go back to and and need um more often than not because of the the medical model that dominates our mental health services um and the way people make sense of our clients needs and as psychologists we we often come across this debate as to how best to explain a client's need. And to me, formulation is perfect for, you know, it's a perfect tool to use in expert witness work, but it doesn't seem to necessarily be uh, the one that you, you know, you can't use, it doesn't sound like you can use it entirely. And it's, it's, it's not something that you can kind of use on its own, really. You have to couple it up, it seems, with diagnosis or some kind of DSM criteria. Am I, is that a fair statement? Is it? it is it's it's, it is a problem um it's a problem that that i wish that we could overcome in the court system the use of of icd or dsm isn't strictly essential the requirement is that there should be significant distress or impairment in functioning um in order to be considered to be uh potentially something which is a, a recognized psychiatric difficulty but the difficulty they then have is that that this term of a recognised psychiatric illness has has been really picked up on by the courts. This idea that actually it needs to be 
part of this very medicalized model. And and that's a problem. So I don't think it necessarily means that we can't formulate and do our formulations as we ever would. And I do do that. So I think it's incredibly important that, and, and even if, you know, for psychiatrists as well, to, to remember that they are trained to do formulation just as we are. And it's absolutely essential that you're almost doing what I tell people when I do training is showing your workings out. Mm-hmm. You're explaining why I think this person is in this situation. And it's not about saying what's wrong with them. It's saying what's happened to them. The, the, the psychiatric illness is something which has been mentioned by the courts a lot. So even going back to, especially in secondary victim claims, where, where the, the person who is, who is the claimant hasn't necessarily been physically injured themselves, but they've witnessed it. So this came up in um, the Hillsborough disaster. And one of the, um, the, the claimants there, um, the court has said, this is back in, I think it was 2008, I think. I'm hoping I've got the right particular claim. But they basically said that a recognised psychiatric illness is one which has been recognised by the psychiatric profession. And in general, they're illnesses that are within the ICD. And the difficulty with this is that it makes it sound like the ICD is something which is really, really rigorous. And and it isn't. And in fact, Mm. the person who, Alan Francis, who led the the DSM-4 task force, has, has been quoted as saying, there is no definition of a mental disorder it's, and he actually, he used a word, I'm not quite sure whether we're allowed to use it, it a word beginning with bull. Um, I mean, he says, <laughs> you just can't define it. And then he goes ahead and defines it. So it was interesting because when Robert Spitzer, who was the, the lead psychiatrist in the 1980 um, DSM-3 task force, when he was asked, how did you decide on five criteria as being your minimum threshold for depression? He said it was consensus. We asked clinicians and researchers, how Mm. many symptoms do you think a patient should have before you diagnose depression? And we came up with the arbitrary figure of five. And he was asked, well, why did you say five and not four? Why didn't you say six? And he said, Mm. because four didn't seem like enough and six seemed like too much. So Mm. we are dealing with something that is absolutely not scientific. You know, the DSM-5 criteria have no basis in science. They are not a thing that can be tested. You can't do a blood test or a brain scan to find out if somebody has, you know, an anxiety disorder versus a depressive disorder versus a trauma-related disorder. But as expert witnesses, we are in a position where we almost have to believe in these things that aren't a thing. We have to be able, mm. because actually standing up in court and trying to then say to the, to the judge, yeah, but depression isn't real in the sense that the label isn't real. That's not going to be helpful at that particular Mm. point in time until we can get the courts to understand that actually it's more important to say, does this meet a criteria over and above which we would consider it to be clinically significant, regardless of the label we give it, until we can get them to understand that that should be the threshold, that should be the thing that we're focusing on. We're stuck. We're stuck with this, you know, this book, this huge big manual of things that are wrong with people and the labels we give them. But actually, the DSM-5, especially, I think, again, it's Alan Francis, he says it has lofty ambitions and sloppy methodology. So we need to be really (laughs) cautious about these diagnoses. They're not particularly, they're not necessarily very helpful. They don't Mm. necessarily guide us on what kind of treatment somebody should have. They literally just slap a label on somebody. And I don't like it. And I do tell the claimants that I see, look, don't worry too much about that section of my report where I say that you meet the criteria for this particular disorder. As psychologists, we are much more interested in what's happened to you than what is wrong with you. We will be basing any treatment that you have on any sort of formulation that we do. However, solicitors find it much easier when it comes to deciding quantum and deciding treatment recommendations if we have given a label. But of course, Mm. it's, you know, it's a really, really hard thing because, you know, there's a lot of research out there to show that that these labels are unhelpful. They're hard to ditch. And, you know, very few people find them something which is validating. Yeah. Yes. I wish we didn't have to use it, but I don't think that the alternative sort of using the kind of power threat meaning framework, which is what the BPS advocate, that's not the court and not, I can hardly get my head around what exactly we're saying there. And of course, the other problem with that kind of thing is that it's all about what the client is saying their difficulties Mm. are. And that is not the purpose of a court report. It's not to just regurgitate what a claimant is saying. It is to, you know, as I said before, interrogate Mm. the information and come up with an answer. So, yes, I use diagnoses and I train others in, in how to use them in the sense of, you know, 
these symptoms fit with this and these symptoms fit with this. And if don't give this diagnosis, if you're giving this one and all this kind of stuff, we can do that. But we are very cautious. And I think we actually just need to, we need to be less worried about it as experts, especially in this particular field. We need to be much less worried about, well, that expert says this diagnosis and I say this diagnosis. That label doesn't matter because mm. as, as if we keep on using this big book as if it's a Bible, we're never going to keep making progress. We need to be observing to the court that there's massive limitations to these labels. It doesn't necessarily mean anything in the sense that it doesn't mean that, you know, PTSD is no worse than severe depression. I don't know why there's ever been this idea that that particular label is worse than that particular label. There's no continuum from that perspective. Biology yeah. never read the DSM-5. It doesn't mean anything. We need to be working with what people are presenting with and how we can help them out. Oh, preach it, sister. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, that's right. You heard it here, everyone. Brilliant. Oh, well, there's so much more that could be said about that. And thank you so much for your thoughts on that. Really interesting. Um, and very, very, um, you know, rings, rings very true for, you know, for my understanding, obviously, as a psychologist. But, I, you know, that, I feel like that's a, it's a debate within the psychology world that doesn't necessarily get much airtime outside. It's a really helpful to, you know, to potentially for our personal injury colleagues to hear. But bringing it back to the, if we can, to the, the sort of practical elements of, um, you know, we, we, within this podcast series, we do like to talk about things that are going to be helpful to our audience um, from the perspective of you in today's episode as an expert witness. What things that you would say to our personal injury colleagues that would help the work you do um, or help our colleagues understand uh, a wish list, if you like, you know, three things that you wish personal injury colleagues could know about expert witness work. Yes. So I think the first thing is, is talk to us. I think that it's really important if solicitors realise that actually we are approachable and we much prefer to be approached directly than through agencies. And, and when we're talking about, you know, complex cases, and especially things like clinical negligence, long-term chronic pain, these kind of conditions that we know the claims are going to potentially take a long time. Talk to us directly. We can talk about terms, conditions. We can negotiate. We can help you out. You don't need to go through lots of different agencies, which require the claimant and the expert and the solicitor to jump through lots of different hoops. So that's the first thing that I would say that we would really like to be able to, to talk more directly mm. with the instructing parties. And also to, to check out your experts before you use them. Make sure that they're not somebody who is part of the industrialization of medical legal work because you won't necessarily get the best out of your expert if they're somebody who is sort of stacking them high, selling them cheap. It's much mm. better to have somebody who's got a really rigorous approach, who has really looked at their accreditation, who's really considered their CPD as an ongoing important element of their work as a medical legal expert. So that would be the other thing to really check out your expert. And I think also to check out the therapists that you're using, because it's while we said before, obviously, perhaps what we're suggesting isn't necessarily exactly the way that therapists would like to work with a particular person. I have also um, seen people who have had their therapy and they've come back to me and the person wasn't sort of fully qualified to do the therapy they were more of a counsellor than a, than a psychologist or than a BABCP accredited therapist mm. they were potentially doing something which we wouldn't necessarily recommend um, that isn't nice guideline recommended and so there are certainly some things which we would really prefer people you know didn't do because it's very hard mm. for us to then say, well, actually, yes, so this person saw this therapist, but actually, do you know what, while they had a great relationship with them, the kind of therapy they were doing wasn't what was recommended. So checking out the therapist and making sure that they are adequately trained, adequately qualified, and that they understand what it is that we've recommended and why, because that's the yeah. other thing is that often people will come with, you know, a history of, of difficult life events and difficult psychiatric or psychological issues. Because we do, because a lot of us have something. But actually, from the point of view of a claim, when we have made a recommendation for therapy, it's because that is the element of this presenting problem, which is related to the claim. So if the therapist then starts working on unrelated issues, it can be very difficult for that person to then fit with the prognosis that we've given. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that those would be some of the, the most important 
things that I would uh, I'd like yeah. them to look into. Yeah, so six sessions of of on by telephone CBT is not going to help I've somebody's PTSD. <laughs> yes, we no. need to be rigorous. Indeed, yeah, no, and that's really that's really helpful. Thank you, because uh, I suppose yes, it kind of almost feels like what you're saying in that last point, particularly that you're. It's not a report that stands alone. You know, it 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 has an ongoing function and it needs to be handed over in an appropriate way there needs Mm -hmm. to be an understanding of fit with whoever takes on the work that you are recommending and as as an expert and it's not just as simple as pick up you know the phone to anyone because they're in the area or they were you know they're saying um that they can you know do things cheaply or whatever it's it's about understanding the um i guess that there is a context and understanding that is is part of choosing the right therapist um, yeah, for absolutely. sure yeah no that's really helpful I feel like I've got so many more questions I want to ask you but I'm <laughs> very aware that this has been already incredibly rich and, and full of so much information I, I for me I think there is something about about fit there is something about uh you know expert witness work needs to sit well with the person doing the work they you know it needs to be something it's a question of integrity it's a question of understanding the client's needs and being able to to advocate for that actually within all the information that you've got not just from the the viewpoint of a solicitor or the client in terms of what they're saying they need um that 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 you are really sort of you've got to have the the strength to be able to stand alone sometimes in that and say this is how I see it um, yeah. And it is, it is exactly that. We need to be, when you are being independent and, and not advocating mm. for, the, for the claimant or for the instructing party, it is a lonely position to hold. Yes. So it is the kind of work where we're not allowed to, to have other people influence our opinion. Mm. Um, so we can't seek supervision to say, well, what do I say in this report? But we can seek support. And I think that it is one of those things that in this line of work, I think burnout is probably very much yes. a real risk. So expert witnesses mm. utilizing their support networks and and talking to other people who do this work about the pressure that mm. they feel or the you know the emotions that they feel I think is really important mm. yeah absolutely no thank you for that last point Katie if people want to get hold of you because you are out there you are doing the work and you clearly know what you're doing and you know if, if people want to get hold of you if our sort of legal colleagues who are listening in want to be able to want to refer to you how do they get hold of you so we have a website applied psychology solutions and i'm also on linkedin and very happy to uh, to have a chat with anybody that that would like to uh, to refer to us or we have a, a group of affiliates so um my company does administration for expert witnesses so we have expert witnesses based around the united kingdom and connections mm-hmm. with other experts through um a greater network that we have so from the point of view of instructing parties, we are you know, very contactable. We're very happy to, to have um, people reach out to us. And also for other experts, anyone who is within the, um, the court. So anybody who's an HCPC registered professional or GMC registered professional working in the UK courts. We have also got a web um, a Facebook page, which is called HCPC and GMC professionals working with UK courts to court health professionals and we're trying to get together any experts who are working in the court system who just want to be able to network with each other pass on recommendations so that's everyone from case managers through to independent experts and um, and even treating treating clinicians if anybody wants to join that Facebook Mm. group then uh, yes we're looking for looking for new members so that we can ensure ongoing CPD and discussion between ourselves on uh, on on this kind of work and make sure that we're networking and using our networks effectively yeah very good excellent we'll put those details in the show notes but for now I will say thank you once more Katie Nunes from Applied Psychology Solutions for your time today really really informative and to our audience thank you for tuning in if you found this episode interesting and useful please like share and comment um, on whatever platform you use and uh, we'll see you next time bye for now 
before you go, if you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support. 